This morning, I would like to take you into the Old Testament. So if you will take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 5. For some of you, it may be in those pages that are still stuck together. Micah chapter 5, and we're going to focus primarily on verse 2. Let me read that to you. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Whenever I pensively reflect upon the incarnation of Christ, the Christmas story, I find myself getting lost in, in wonder and in praise. It's a story that's filled with marvelous mysteries beyond our comprehension. It's a captivating drama, is it not? One that elevates the hearts of the redeemed to increased heights of Breathless adoration, and I wish to take you on a journey this morning, a journey back in time as we look at some of these great mysteries, and maybe you will see some things that you've never seen before. And you know how it works, whenever you understand anew, perhaps for the first time, some great truth in the Word of God, you you, you find yourself having, having yet another reason to give him glory. Now, let me remind you of the story that we are familiar with in Luke 2 that we've just read about a few minutes ago. We learned that an angel of the Lord comes to this little group of of shepherds as they cared for their sheep on the hills surrounding Jerusalem, a grazing area for animals that would be sacrificed in the temple, which is fitting. And little did they know that the birth of the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, was about to occur. And little did they know that they were the humble recipients of this amazing truth. In Luke 10, or Luke 2, beginning in verse 10, We read, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then as the story unfolds, they immediately go to Bethlehem, the city of David, which was on the southern slope of of Mount Zion, just a, a few miles away. And there Luke tells us that they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And in verse 19, we read that Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
I would imagine what went through her mind was something like this. I have given birth to my creator, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who is utterly unapproachable and transcended in ways that I can't even fathom. This one has now come to earth through me and is now this God baby that I nurse, the one that I hold in my arms that is indeed the God-man, almighty God disguised as a helpless infant. This is the ruler of heaven and of earth, the Messiah of Israel, this one who coos at the sound of my voice, and this one that holds my finger in his hand is also the one that will hold the royal scepter as the king of kings and lord of lords. How can this be? It's astounding, isn't it? That she could look there before her in a feeding trough and realize that that is the royal monarch of the universe. Not housed in a palace, but in a stable, probably a cave. And then suddenly the shepherds come. I'm sure they're wild eyed and they're they're out of breath and, and they, they, they just can't can't hardly talk because of what they've just seen. And they describe what they heard, what they saw. And Mary and Joseph had to have been utterly speechless. And given the praise she uttered prior to giving birth that we talked about last week in the Magnificat, we can see all of the rich theology that would have informed her mind and her heart so that she could comprehend the magnitude of what was going on, which can only be explained by the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in her understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And so Mary would have understood what the shepherds told her, that this child was indeed a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The same one later spoken to the terrified Herod when he inquired as to where this baby would be born and where he would be and so forth. And you remember the chief priests and the scribes of the people responded by quoting this prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth to me, for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. What an amazing prophecy, one that was given 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, a prophecy that no doubt Mary included in her pondering. So I invite you to join me this morning as we look at some of these great truths surrounding this amazing passage of Scripture and all that happened that day and what comfort it is to the redeemed, right? Even though we are aliens in this world, 
as I think I mentioned earlier, you, you drive around and you can't even see a nativity scene anymore. It's almost considered offensive to have that. It's hard to find any reference to Christ. And we, we got some card from it, none of you, and, and it said on there, fa-la-la-la-la. What does that mean? Bah humbug, you know? How about joy to the world, right? Well, as we look at this, our hearts will be animated to further praise as we behold the glory of the Lord. And by the way, we know that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are increasingly transformed into his likeness. That's an amazing promise that we see in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So this morning, I, I want us to look at four things that emerge from this text. We're going to look at the birthplace of the king, the rule of the king, the sending of the king, and the eternality of the king. Now let me give you the context here, and it'll all begin to make sense. The northern kingdom of Israel was about to fall to Assyria when Micah began his ministry, which focused primarily on the southern kingdom of Judah, where he was from. And unlike his, his contemporary Isaiah, who addressed the, the court of Jerusalem, Micah preached to the common folks. The reign of Ahaz had brought spiritual decay and and chaos and idolatry to the country. It, it, it was filled with spiritual lethargy, hypocrisy, idolatry, all manner of wickedness, apostasy. They had violated the most basic tenets of the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, in chapter 6 and verse 8, he reminds them of the word of the Lord, what the Lord required of them. And there he says, you're to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with their, with their God. But they did none of this. And Judah was a very prosperous country at this time. The culture was marked by affluence. It was considered to be militarily invincible. They were convinced that they were blessed by God, but their outward prosperity really just concealed their inward wickedness and idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. In fact, if you read Isaiah chapter 5, you'll get a graphic description of what was really going on, all of the corruption, which, by the way, is a perfect portrayal of the United States of America today. Judah was characterized by Material greed and drunkenness and debauchery. They had redefined morality, Isaiah tells us. They called good evil and evil good. God cursed them because of this and also because they were haughty. They were arrogant. They were defiant. Their leadership and judicial system were all corrupt. They fully embraced religious syncretism where you take kind of the the common denominator of all the religions around you and come up with your own ecumenical religion. The Old Testament sacrificial system included even the worship of, of the loathsome Canaanite fertility god Baal, which means master. 
The land was filled with high places where they practiced things that you don't even want to know about. So God commissioned his servant Micah. By the way, the, 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 the word Micah in Hebrew means who is like the Lord. He commissions Micah to prophesy to them. And his message is basically this. Because of God's holiness and covenant relationship with you, and because you have violated this, he is going to judge you for your sin and your disobedience. But ultimately, one day, he will establish a kingdom and install a king who would reign in righteousness. So in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us with a rod. They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And although Assyria was the most immediate threat, we know that according to 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 and 586, the Babylonians came along and laid siege to Jerusalem. They burned and plundered it, and they captured King Zedekiah, who according to the scriptures did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in a hideous act of of barbarism, they, they brought Zedekiah's sons before King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king had all of those sons slaughtered before Zedekiah's eyes. Remember that? And then, then he put out Zedekiah's eyes. So the last thing he would ever see was the slaughter of his sons. And then he shackled Zedekiah and bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. So this was Micah's inspired prophecy of impending doom because of sin. But this horrific judgment that was going to come upon them would one day be followed by a wonderful future blessing. So there was hope involved with all of this. And this, of course, was part of God's unchanging faithfulness to fulfill his covenants. And this hope is presented here in the text before us. So let's look at it more closely. First of all, regarding the birthplace of the king. Again, verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now, Ephrathah means fruitfulness or abundance. And it was known as a place that was filled with vineyards and orchards. It was a beautiful place. But it was also the ancient name for Bethlehem. Bethlehem is how they would say it. And what that means is house of bread, and it was used to distinguish it from other towns that had similar names, such as Bethlehem of Zebulun. And here Micah refers to Bethlehem, where David was born, as we read in 1 Samuel 17. Already we begin to see the initial sketchings of what would become a divine masterpiece on the canvas of redemptive history. And for, for, from this little, seemingly insignificant little town, too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
one who would be born, one would be born who would care for seemingly insignificant people. Now, why of all places would the incarnate King of Glory choose to be born in an insignificant little village a couple of miles south of Jerusalem? I mean, why not Rome, or at least in Jerusalem itself? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, because Bethlehem was a royal city of ancient days. Now, since Jesus was born the king of Israel, it was only fitting that he would be born in the city where Israel's great king David had been born. Over a thousand years before the Messiah king was born, God made an unconditional covenant with David. You read about it in 2 Samuel 7 promising him that he would raise up from him a descendant, the coming Messiah, who would eventually reign over Israel in a kingdom that would last forever, an eternal kingdom whereby the whole world would be blessed through David's coming seed. And all of that, of course, pointed to the Messiah. So it's fitting that The Messiah would be born there in Bethlehem. It was a royal city. But secondly, it's fitting because Bethlehem's history is a picture of a coming Messiah king. You see, Bethlehem has a double meaning. It not only means house of bread or place of bread, but also house or place of fighting or war. Now, we know bread is the symbol of life in Scripture, like the manna from heaven that God used to feed his covenant people in the the wilderness. Did not Jesus say in John 6, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world? And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. But when you think of the other meaning of Bethlehem, a place of war, a place of fighting, we also think of Jesus, who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, both of which characterized the Savior. Conflict was his daily fare, was it not? This is all he knew, along with all who would follow him. And when a man eats from the bread of life, what happens? He declares war on Satan and his minions and the world system in which he lives. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And some of you know exactly what that is like, those of you who have unsaved people in your family. So to be sure, both life and death marked the past as well as the future history of Bethlehem. If we go to Genesis chapter 35, we read about how God changed Jacob's name to Israel and said to him in verse 9 and following, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, 
and kings shall come from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. And we know, as we read that story, that on the heels of that covenant, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, died in childbirth, and she was buried in Bethlehem, where the scripture says he sat up a pillar over her grave. And as we read that story, we learn that as Rachel was about to die, she named her son Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. But then Jacob came along and changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And Benjamin, of course, was one of Jacob's 12 sons, and eventually from Jacob's son Judah came David, and ultimately the greater king, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You begin to see the history. Nothing that God does is capricious. Nothing is kind of, eh, I guess we'll just do this. Everything fits together. And what a marvelous picture of the, of the greater son that would be born to Mary in that same place. Like, like Rachel, Mary could have called her son, son Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. But God the Father would ascribe to him a radically different name, a greater name of honor, even beyond Benjamin, son of my right hand. He would call him Jesus, which means he saves. Yahweh is salvation is what it means. In fact, Peter tells us in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it was Bethlehem where Rachel agonized in the birth of Benjamin, a place that became a symbol of, of painful waiting of the sons of Israel for their promised Messiah. So we learn in Scripture, in the Old Testament, that Rachel was the ancestress of the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh through Joseph, and then Benjamin in the south. And while, and, and when the, the Babylonians later came to carry them off into exile, the Lord spoke through Jeremiah in chapter 31 and verse 15, and he says this, A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And folks, what a sad harbinger that was of an even greater atrocity that would occur many years later in that same place in Bethlehem when an enraged Herod slaughtered all of the male children in Matthew 2. Then according to verse 17, we read, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, when we move forward in history, in the history of Bethlehem, we discover more reasons for its, its royal greatness and, and its symbolism. About 900 years after the days of 
of Rachel, a Moabitess, journeyed to Bethlehem, and her name was Ruth. There she became a servant of a very wealthy man named Boaz, who found her and took her unto himself to be his wife. Boaz was a type of Christ, the one who became Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And Ruth was included even in the, in the physical lineage of the coming Messiah. You read about that in Matthew 1, verse 5. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who lived in Bethlehem, who became the father of his son named David. So, folks, it should be no surprise that the son of David, the Messiah, King, be born in the same royal place that Micah prophesied. And it should be no surprise that in the providence of God, Caesar Augustus would demand that a census be taken, one that required everyone to go and register in the city of their birth. And it should be no surprise, therefore, that Mary and Joseph would embark upon a a 70-mile journey through treacherous terrain in an advanced state of pregnancy to make their way to Bethlehem, their tribal home in Judea. But, you know, I think I would be totally surprised if Mary and Joseph didn't quote Micah's prophecy with the cadence of the hooves of that little donkey that bore the virgin and her child. And would this not be a theme of Mary's pondering when the shepherds made their announcement to her and said, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As a footnote, as a footnote I might add that if, if you read Luke chapter 2, you, especially the first seven verses, you, you see the, the, how the inspired author was, was very, very careful to precisely reveal the sequence of events that led Joseph and Mary from Nazareth of Galilee to Bethlehem of Judea. Now, we can also ask the question, well, why not just register in Nazareth? Why didn't that happen? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts here, maybe three. First of all, to demonstrate the sovereignty of Almighty God, who alone can orchestrate all of the events of history through the miracle of divine providence to accomplish his purposes, which he's continuing to do even today as I speak. Why, why would Caesar Augustus decide to have a, sentence, a census at this particular time? Is that just coincidence? No, not at all. Why would he quarrel with Herod at this time? Why would he choose to tax Judea and make it a province instead of having it as just a separate kingdom? Well, because God was orchestrating all of these events. Oh, dear friends, make no mistake. The miracle of divine providence was at work to accomplish the sovereign purposes of God. Now, kings may think 
that they devise their plans, but ultimately it is the Lord who directs their heart. So why not go to just do it in Nazareth to, to register? Well, first of all, to demonstrate the sovereignty of Almighty God. Secondly, I believe to confirm the inspired truths of Scripture. Alva J. McLean said, and I quote, Upon the fulfillment of the jots and tittles rest the veracity of God. An amazing statement. Beloved, every word, every phrase, every number, the tense of every verb, all of those things comprise the inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative all-sufficient word of the living God. And then thirdly, I believe that they did not do it in Nazareth to underscore the supreme importance of interpreting Scripture, including the rest of Micah's prophecy concerning the Messianic kingdom, to interpret those things literally. But as we consider the picture that is painted by the village of Bethlehem. Notice also the prophet speaks of her as being, quote, too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, literally what that's saying is, is this place is not even large enough to be one province. I mean, it is a place of total insignificance. Thou little David amongst the giants is the idea. Yet notice from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. You know, isn't this just a picture of God's love as well as the character of his subjects? I mean, think about this. Did not the king say that we must enter like little children, right? No agenda, no haughty spirit, just simple, helpless children with dependent faith believing. And did not he say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the weak things of the world ashamed the things which are strong, that no man should boast before God. I'm so glad that Christ came to save the insignificant nobodies like me and like you. People that the world doesn't know and doesn't care to know. And yet our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world incomprehensible. We were betrothed to the bridegroom to be his bridal church before time began. Our names are written on the very heart of God, the one who created us and has saved us by his grace. So we might say that Christ Jesus is the savior of the little ones. So we've seen the birthplace of the king. Secondly, the sending of the king. He says, one will go forth for me. And what an amazing truth that the father would send forth his son. John 5, 36, Jesus said, the works which the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the father has sent me. 
And in John 7, beginning in verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. But folks, we must not forget, although the father sent the son, the son voluntarily came to do the will of his father. Set asiding, setting aside his, his glory to purchase our redemption, all of which was empowered and accomplished by the work of the Spirit. You know, when I think of these things, I have to say, oh, the depths of the Father's love, that, that he would send his only begotten Son to be my Savior. And oh, the depths of the Son's love, that he would suffer and die in my stead. And all the depths of the Spirit's love to cause a virgin to conceive and a child to be born, the incarnate word, that the word might become flesh, as John says, and dwell among us, that we might behold his glory. And then to empower the Son of Man to sustain the tortures of Gethsemane and the scourging and and, and the crucifixion. And then to inspire the written word that we have that transforms our hearts and minds. And then to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment and cause us to be born again. (laughs) I mean, where do you end here? Then dwells within us, seals us for the day of redemption, and on and on it goes. Now, though the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in essence, and, and they are three distinct persons, each equally deserving our honor and praise. Often we tend to ascribe um, the honor of our salvation more to the Son than to the Father and the Holy Spirit. But we want to be careful. Each member of the triune Godhead plays an important role in our redemption. So the Father sent forth his Son. The Spirit conceived the incarnate Christ in Mary. And then when he descended on, on earth here to take on human flesh, even in Mary's womb, he, he was accompanied by a host of angelic beings that later announces his birth. So we see the birthplace and the sending of the son. Thirdly, notice the rule of the king. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now, some will be quick to say, well, my, that sure didn't work out well, did it? I mean, he's not ruling in Israel. He came into his own and his own received him not. I mean, they crucified him. And we know when we read the gospel records that that he preached uh, the kingdom to the Jew first, to the lost sheep of Israel, to the chosen people of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And yet they said, we will not have this man reign over us. The people asked, is this the son of David in Matthew 12, verse 23? (laughs) But the Pharisees insisted that all of his miraculous works were not a testimony of the Holy Spirit, but of the power of Satan. Unbelievable. Such self-imposed spiritual blindness and hypocrisy sealed their fate. 
and only judgment remained. And indeed, Israel rejected their king. They crucified the Son of Man. But this was precisely according to God's plan. This didn't catch God by surprise. Remember at Pentecost in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, Peter is preaching And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But what escapes the critic is that the promised king was also the Passover lamb, the final and the perfect sacrifice who came to make atonement for sin that we might be saved. Most people don't understand that. But from the beginning of his earthly ministry, the Savior King preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. And didn't Pilate say to him, so you are a king? In John 18, verse 37, Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. But also did not John the Baptist say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1. And folks, is it not the Lamb who is worthy to open the seals of judgment in the book of Revelation? Will not the wicked make war with the Lamb, as we read in those texts? And will not the glorious light of the Lamb illuminate the new Jerusalem someday? So the long-promised messianic kingdom on earth must await a a future fulfillment when the king returns in all of his glory. And and during the interregnum, which is a, a term that basically means the interval between Christ's first and second coming, during that period of time, the kingdom has taken on a form of what he called in Matthew 13, 11, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, referring to the, the truths disclosed or referring to the truths not disclosed in the Old Testament that are related to the gospel and the church. So indeed, Christ will be the king of Israel, as the prophets have foretold, when, according to Paul's words in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the father's. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So the inspired prophet reveals to us the birthplace, the sending and the rule of the king. And finally, the eternality of the king. He says his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You see, this phrase reveals the existence of the Messiah from 
eternity past to eternity future, from before time even began, throughout the millennial kingdom that will one day come upon the earth, and throughout the eternal state. He says, his goings forth are from long ago. And you know, Scripture bears this truth. As I reflected upon this, the the pre-incarnate Christ appeared in the Old Testament in various times as the angel of the Lord. You remember in Genesis 16, he appeared to Hagar near a spring in the desert and commanded her to return to Sarah. In Genesis 18, he appeared to Abraham where he promised that his elderly wife Sarah would have a son and that out of Abraham, a great and powerful nation would arise and all the nations on earth would be blessed through him. You will recall in Genesis 31, he came to Jacob in a dream and in chapters 32, a 97-year-old uh, Jacob wrestled with him all night, after which the Lord blessed him and changed his name to Israel. In Exodus 3, he appears to Moses in the burning bush. In Joshua 5, he appeared to Joshua near Jericho, remember, with a sword drawn in his hand. He appeared to Gideon in Judges 6, and there the Lord says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Go in the strength you have and serve Israel out of Midian's hand and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And in Daniel three, he appeared in the furnace of fire with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Dear friend, he appeared again as a babe in a manger. But rest assured, he is going to appear yet again when he returns in the blazing glory of his Shekinah as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and also in the fiery wrath of his indignation. Revelation 19, verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, folks, as you look around at this world and see it deteriorating the way it is, know this, the king is coming. He is coming again. So, indeed, as Micah says, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Child of God, don't miss this. The, the, the Savior King has not only existed as the second member of the triune Godhead from all eternity, but he has set his love upon us in eternity past. Second Timothy 1 verse 9, his own purpose and grace was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Paul says to Titus in chapter 1, we were chosen of God and we have the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, which could be translated before time began. So think of this. God chose to set his love upon us in eternity past, before the foundations of the earth were ever even laid And under his sovereign control, he orchestrated all of the events of history 
All of these things that led up to our understanding historically of Bethlehem, all the way to a time when a virgin would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he superintended then the development and and the birth of Jesus. And I think of Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. This was true of Jesus as it was of us. Moreover, we know that he has ordained even the length of our life, according to verse 16 of Psalm 139. In thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. I often think about this, that, that, that before you or I were born, God knew the color of our hair, the shape of our face, color of our eyes, the color of our skin, the sound of our voice, the shape of our nails. Don't you love it when our babies are born and we look like, you got your daddy's nails or your mama's nails. You know, we see all these things. He knew all of that. He even knew that we would rebel against him, that we would violate his law, that we would reject him and ignore him become his enemy, unable to save ourselves from the justice of his wrath. And yet, despite all of that, he had set into motion a plan of redemption that cannot be thwarted, even by our own sin. And all of this included the birth of the Son of God, the God baby in the manger. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, Romans 5, 8. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, as we leave the study of this text this morning, I want us to think about a very poignant passage of one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons. It was delivered in New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England, December 23, 1855. I believe it's in your bulletin. Let me read this to you. It spoke to my heart, as I'm sure it will you. He says, Blessed Lord Jesus, thou art ruler in thy people's hearts, and thou ever shalt be. We want no other ruler save thyself, and we will submit to none other. We are free because we are the servants of Christ. We are at liberty because he is our ruler and we know no bondage and no slavery because Jesus Christ alone is monarch of our hearts. He came to be ruler in Israel and mark you, that mission of his is not quite fulfilled yet and shall not be till the latter day glories. In a little while you shall see Christ come come again to be ruler over his people Israel And ruler over them, not only as spiritual Israel, but even as natural Israel. For the Jews shall be restored to their land, and the tribes of Jacob shall shall yet sing in the halls of their temple. Unto God there shall yet again be offered Hebrew songs of praise, and the heart of the unbelieving Jew shall be melted at the feet of the true Messiah. 
In a short time, he who at his birth was hailed king of the Jews by Easterns, and at his death was written king of the Jews by a Western, shall be called king of the Jews everywhere. Yes, king of the Jews and Gentiles also. In that universal monarchy whose dominion shall be coextensive with the habitable globe and whose duration shall be coeval with time itself. He came to be ruler in Israel and a ruler most decidedly he shall be when he shall reign among his people with his angel ancients gloriously. And folks, this is precisely what Micah goes on to prophesy in verse 4. He says, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. It's interesting that this Christmas season is a time in our country where we look around and we see, I think, unprecedented chaos and corruption and hatred. We, we see things that I could not even have imagined 20 years ago in terms of the immorality in our country. Makes Christmas all the more important this year, doesn't it? Because we are reminded of what we've heard here yet again this morning, that he is our savior and he is our king and our God reigns and he will continue to rule and he will come again as he has promised. And I just pray that all of you are ready, that all of you have placed your faith in Christ that you've cried out to him for his saving grace, being aware of the wretchedness of your sin and the judgment you deserve and the judgment you will have lest you repent. I pray that you all have. I pray that those of us who know and love Christ will ponder these things even as Mary could ponder them. By the way, we've got a lot more to ponder than she did, right? And so let's do that. And let these great truths animate our hearts to worship and to serve our Savior and King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we find ourselves awestruck when we immerse ourselves in your word and and try to wrap our mind around your redemptive purposes as you have revealed them to us. And all we can say is thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us by your grace. But beyond that, we also say, come quickly. Come quickly. But until you do, help us to be instruments of righteousness. Help us to be a living and a holy sacrifice that's acceptable to you. So we thank you and we give you praise for all that you have done, are doing, and will do. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. 
For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.